And in case that wasn't clear enough, it's coming to Rome and not home. Last Sunday, we watched Italy be crowned champions of Europe after defeating England 3-2 on penalties. It's the second time the Italians have won the Euros, their first since 1968. It's also their first major trophy lifting since the 2006 World Cup. With Sunday's victory, that makes it 34 games without defeat for the Azzurri. When qualifications for next year's World Cup begin, they will have the opportunity to match Spain and Brazil's all-time record of 35 wins when they take on 71st-ranked Bulgaria. Aside from Italy, full credit to England on their journey to the Euro final. And despite Sterling practicing his swimming early, the English squad played some good football throughout their Euro 2020 campaign. The Euro final was England's first major final in 55 years since winning the World Cup in 1966. And they couldn't have asked for a better start after Luke Shaw opened the scoring with his first of the Euros two minutes after kickoff. That goal was the fastest ever to be scored at a European Championship final. And to make things even sweeter, it was in front of a home crowd at Wembley Stadium after more than 60,000 fans were welcomed to watch the game live. It seemed as if England were actually going to bring it home. Until the closing stages of the first half, it appeared as if Italy forgot how to execute their plays. Their passing was one of the more disappointing we have seen from them at the Euros, and their shooting was simply not good enough to challenge English keeper Jordan Pickford. They were outplayed. However, Italy grew in strength with coach Roberto Mancini, and they came out of halftime aggressive. By the 67th minute, Italy equalized with Leonardo Bonucci, tucking it in. Italy's midfielders dominate possession, and for the remainder of the game, they created chance after chance. But after not finding a solution through 120 minutes, penalties awaited the two sides. Before the final whistle went in extra time, England manager Gareth, Gareth Southgate uh, made two substitutions, bringing in Rashford and Sancho, leading to penalties. Now, those decisions ended up costing England the game. After both Italy and England took turns with the lead in the shootout, England would fail to hit the back of the net three consecutive times, falling short. I'm joined today by someone who was rooting for the losing side in the Euro final, James Sharman. I guess it's appropriate to ask you, how are you feeling and have your feelings calmed down since last Sunday? <laughs> yeah, they've definitely calmed down. You know what? I mean, entering this, entering that match, I suspected that Italy would find a way anyway to win it. I thought Italy was a better team throughout Euro. Um, but to be honest with you, I, I feel good about this current England team. Aside from all the crap that's happened since, you know, with the Rashford and, and Saka and Sancho, uh, social media, uh, you know, horror. Um, from a footballing standpoint, I feel good about this team in that they're very, very young. They're only going to get better. They, they made a big jump getting to the semifinals, you know, sorry, to the final over the semifinals. So overall, I'm, I'm optimistic. You know, yeah, it was painful. I mean, listen, you watch your team lose. It's always painful, especially on penalties. But when I put it into context and, and look forward, um, I'm actually pretty happy about where this, this program, where this team's going. Right. So Gareth Southgate put out three young players, Sancho, Rashford, and Saka on consecutive penalties 
in what was, you can say, one of the biggest matches in England's recent football history. On top of that, Southgate left Jack Relish and Raheem Sterling out. Now, Frank Lampard suggested that Sterling isn't a penalty taker, but if you're Southgate, don't you want your best players taking the most crucial penalties, especially as your fifth shooter instead of a 19-year-old? And I want to ask you from an English fan's perspective, what's your take on this? Did you agree with Southgate's decision? Now, you know, keep in mind all the pressure that was on Sokka. A 19-year-old kid had an entire country on his back and, you know, missing his country loses and the unfortunate happened. You know what? Gareth Southgate is all about process and he had his process uh, for, for the shootout. And that was, you know, let's, let's keep the tabs of how these guys do during practice. Who are our best takers? And he was confident that from practice, his best takers were, you know, you got Kane and you got Maguire, the two, you know, veterans experience, two best. And then you got these three kids who obviously performed really well in, in practice, in training. Now, that's different when you throw in a million people watching, a billion people, sorry, watching around the world and 70-odd thousand at Wembley. So I'm not sure he factored in that, that pressure. Or maybe those players had that psychological makeup that he didn't think that would be a big deal to them. He's been through it, right, Gareth Southgate. Don't forget that. He went through it in 96 as a young player, and, and it defined his career, I think, unfairly. Um, but I think in, in years to come, Southgate will look back, and he will probably determine that he shouldn't have put Saka in particular in that position. You know, Rashford, listen, Rashford scored big penalties in shootouts before, very successfully for his club, Manchester United. And, and I believe he took one for England too against Colombia. Could be wrong there. But anyway, he has experience. Um, Sancho, decent stats as well, you know, for his club. Um, you mentioned Sterling there. That's the interesting one for me because obviously Sterling has all the experience in the world, but his penalty shoots, shootout record is very poor. So Southgate had all this information all this data, and he decided they, that that was the right thing to do. Um, but, you know, I, I think overall, you know, I, I think Saka in particular was, was the wrong move, given he's 19 years old. Put him in there, sure, but maybe not in the fifth spot, which is generally the, the most important spot. Um, so, yeah, you know, I think Southgate will look back and, and will question that. But overall, listen, shootout for shootout. Someone's got to win, someone's got to lose. You know, he, he brought those two players on in particular, especially for penalties, especially for penalties. And they both missed in, in Sancho and Rashford. That doesn't look good. Yeah. And with this loss, England has only won 22% of their major tournament shootouts, which makes it the lowest ratio of any European nation to have been involved in three or more. Now, in a way, this seemed like deja vu from 2018 for England when they faced Croatia in the semifinals of the World Cup. They scored early and they failed to hold up and then they fell both times in extra play. As an England supporter, does it feel like deja vu all over again or not really? Yeah, I, I get that. I think it's a different team entirely. You know, um, I, I felt optimistic playing Croatia. Um, I mean, Croatia was a great team who you know, excelled and peaked at the right time, very experienced. But I thought England played pretty well in that game until the end. Italy, I thought they were outplayed from, what, the 15th minute. I thought England started off really, really well, scored the early goal, had, had their foot on Italy's throat. And then they decided to sit back. Now, whether it's a tactic from Southgate or whether that's just a natural inclination for players when you score so early, you kind of defend what you have. Whatever it was, it was the wrong thing to do. I think they should be far more aggressive. Um, you know, she's deja vu. You know, Croatia, like I said, was a different beast entirely. 
I, I again after that match, remember Croatia barely it's three years ago now. Um, I remember three years ago thinking, man, this team's going places. It's still a young team, you know. There's, there's some other players in there. Um, Ashley Young, for example, he probably won't be there by Euro, and you know we're right about that. He got even younger between the World Cup and Euro, and again the future looks really bright now. So um, it's all progress, right? And I think that's all you can ask for is, is progress when you follow a team. Um, in the past, with England teams, there hasn't been that progress. It's been a coach who's just trying to get the best 11 players on the field at any one time, and it hasn't worked out. Now we've got a manager who really has a philosophy and looks at each game being separate from the previous game or the next game and selects his team accordingly. So big names left out. So from that, I see progress. And I see a team now that's being what? So a semi-final at the World Cup, um, I believe a final in the Nations League, a final now at the European Championship. Things are going okay, you know. The World Cup's 16 months away, right? I, I think England will enter that feeling pretty good about themselves. We know this is a young group of players, like you mentioned, and they'll be sticking around together for quite some time. Surely we can expect, I don't know if it's kind enough to say this, but we can probably expect a championship coming in the foreseeable future. With Qatar 2022 just over a year away, uh, what do England have to do in order to get past that losing marker, similar to what you said, and finally win that major trophy? Listen, it's going to be a battle, right? In, in, in fairness to England, um, the last two tournaments have done really well and they've had pretty good draws to get to where they got. Now, you know, Euro was more difficult than the World Cup where it was a really easy draw to get to the semifinals. Um, so, so, you know, England should remember that the World Cup will be very difficult no matter what, right? So, you know, it might be too early for them. But to get this progress, to continue this progress, you look at the team, um, is Jordan Pickford the right choice? in goal is there a better option out there um he, he's kind of you can see him get not honestly panicky necessarily but he's not at his best when, when the going gets tough he makes big saves but he makes some bad decisions too is dean henderson a better option i'm not saying he is but we'll see in the next eight to 16 months at the back there you got you know the center back partnership stones and Maguire will be in their peak they'll be even better the fullbacks um carl walker's a year older but he'll be i think still pretty good that midfield pivot, the, the, the Declan Rice, Calvin Phillips, they were kind of thrown together for this tournament. And there were many question marks. They were brilliant. I thought they were just outstanding, but they'll have another 16 months of the full season behind them to kind of gel and get better. Yeah. And then up front, you know, Harry Kane will be in his prime still. Who's playing beside him? Will, will Jaden Sancho get his opportunity? Will Jack Grealish force himself into that team? Or will Mason Mount still be the guy? Um, so I think the depth of England and the age of those players coming off the bench will really make it interesting moving forward to see what is the preferred 11 each game in, in the World Cup. There's definitely room for improvement. You know, I think we, we, we shouldn't get lost in that, that England had a great tournament. It was fun. Yeah, football's coming on, yada, yada, yada. But they weren't perfect, right? They were poor against Scotland. They were poor in the final at times against Italy. There's a lot of room for improvement. So I, I think we need to see that, obviously, between now and the World Cup. Before we continue, I want to ask you one more thing about England. Sterling in particular, you can probably wrap your head about what I'm about to ask you. What, what, did you, what was your opinion um, on that penalty against Denmark? Was that a penalty um, uh, for England? <laughs> I thought that might come, Matthew. I thought that might come, that question. And listen, it was a very soft penalty. There's no doubt about it, no. right? You know, that being said, every strike, every forward in world football would have gone down under that contest in the box. You know, people can't complain. I, I, I despise that element in football. I despise diving. 
I despise embellishment of injuries even more, though, because diving, sadly, is, it's become part of the game. And, you know, often it's to try and avoid contact. They, they, they go to ground. So in that case, it was extremely harsh on Denmark. But I understand why he went down and there was contact. So, yeah, was. you know, people need to kind of calm down, I think, really, because you see those, those penalties called every single week in every single league around the world. It sucks, but it's the reality. That's football. One of the greatest things about this great sport is the feeling of sweet redemption. After falling short to Greece at Euro 2004, we saw Cristiano Ronaldo win Euro 2016. And now we saw Italy redeem themselves after Giorgio Collini and Leonardo Bonucci. They lost in blowout fashion to Spain at Euro 2012. They are now European champions. But that's not all they redeemed. It was less than four years ago that Italy plunged to the lowest moment of its team's history by failing to qualify for the World Cup for the first time in six decades. With the work of Roberto Mancini leading Italy on this outstanding unbeaten run, this team is back on the map as one of the best and are sure to be favorites heading to Qatar 2022. Do you agree? 100%. Yeah. What a story Mancini's been at this team. You mentioned redeeming and redemption. You know, Roberto Mancini's redemption story, right? When he played the game, one of the best, you know, forwards in world football and never really got that great moment for his country. He does fall out with management with coaching. And, and, and I think he really, he says it himself, you know, he regrets that now because he missed some great moments as, as a footballer playing for his country. And now he takes the helm coming out of the, you know, the embers of what was uh, a, just a dumpster fire of a qualifying campaign for Italy and just crushed the nation. Right. I mean, you know, I mean, my God, it's religion in, in, in Italy. So the failure to qualify for the world cup was the end as they knew it. So in comes Mancini. And he just redefines that team. He's still got good young players there. He's, he's coaching this really modern, progressive style of football. So unlike the Italy we're used to seeing. And I think it bodes so well for the future. That Italy-Spain game, Matthew, I'm sure you remember watching it. It's one of the greatest international matches we've seen for a long time in the semifinals. Yeah. Two teams, you know, who are so, you know, on the cutting edge of tactics internationally and where the game's moving. And Mancini is a big part of that. You know, he's got this team playing a certain style. They want the ball. They're going to be aggressive. Yeah, they still Italy. They can defend as well as anyone. You've got Benucci and Collini back there, you know, who I think any team in the world would love to have. Um, but beyond that, they've got this, this youth moving through the team. You know, well, guys even went on the bench, you know, for this tournament. So I think Italy are going to be around for a long time. You know, Collini and Benucci might have a World Cup left in them. Beyond that, you know, maybe not, you know, Cleaney in particular. He's, what, 36 now, I think, 37 around yeah, there. 36, yeah. Yeah, I mean, he's, he's, he's enjoying himself so much, right? <laughs> he, he might go on for another five years, who knows? But, yeah, I, I, you know, I've never spoken this passionately about Italy in my life. But Neither now I want to see this team play. <laughs> I want to see this team play, you right. know, because they're, they're fun to watch. Right. And they were fully deserving of winning Euro. Right. Even with their unbeaten run. Italy was a team that didn't that many people didn't take seriously, especially in the group stage. Portuguese fans in particular. We know the rivalry between yeah. Portuguese and Italians, especially here in Toronto. Uh, they were in particular saying that Italy was fortunate with the group uh, they've been placed in. And I guess, you know, they do have a point. You know, Portugal was with Germany and France. And then Hungary wasn't an easy test either. But Italy went undefeated throughout the tournament. And, you know, with them saying that Italians shouldn't get too excited... For anyone who knows Italians um, and their passion for the game, like you said, it's religion. Um, they will never stand back. Woodbridge will always be there through thick and thin. And for someone who has Italian family uh, and is surrounded by them, I can I can confirm that. 
since <laughs> since their opening match against Turkey, Italy has without a doubt, like you said, been the best team. And even though they act like princesses at times or ballerinas, whatever you want to say, with all the diving, uh, just the way they pass and work the ball up the field is a joy to watch, similar to what you just said. In my episode with Christian Jack, I said, don't be surprised if Italy goes all the way. And here we are. What impressed you most about the Italians at, at this Euro? I think the way they could adapt their style of football as well. You watched, you mentioned that it wasn't an easy group, but they just flew through it. That they dominated and then they beat Austria and they were challenged against Austria. I thought they, you know, there are times where, man, they could blow this. They adapted. And then, of course, Belgium. What another great game that was. And Belgium played, I thought, well in that. And people are ripping Belgium, you know, you know, once again, wasting this opportunity. But they went out swinging, but Italy found a way to hang on there. And then against Spain, they, Italy wasn't a better team against Spain. Italy was poor at times. They sat really deep. It's almost like the old Italy once again. And they still found a way. And then they switched it again for England. And they dominated that game after a very slow start. So it showed me a team that has numerous ways it can play. Um, and, you know, I know the, the face of Italy, I guess you can tell me perhaps, but the face of Italy is still Giorgio Collini right. at this point. Right. But moving forward, there's some very good players, mm-hmm. you know, who, who will, I think, take that mantle. I, I wonder where the leadership might come from eventually. That might be one question, but I'm sure they're there waiting in the wings. I think under Mancini, you've got a group who really enjoy playing for him and like playing with each other. You know, often with, with Italy in the past, you've seen them, them dominate, sure, but they haven't. Mm-hmm to me, seem that they're enjoying themselves, you know, being just like machines, like just like, we're going to win this, you know. Wah. Whereas in this tournament, they're laughing and they're joking. That, that, that image is um, before the shootout when it was, uh, uh, who was it, Cleany and Alba in Spain, just before the, the shootout. And yeah. they were having a great old time, weren't they? You know, he was like lifting him up, you know. I thought, this is Georgia Cleany, this is an Italian centre-back. Look how much fun he's having. Even before the tournament, Matthew, you, you saw them, they announced the squad. Yep. It's like this, this disco, Europe, Europe, Euro trash disco. And they got the, the suit jackets on, they're dancing and stuff. Like, my God, these guys are loose. These guys are really loose. So I think that's my big takeaway from the Italian team, how much they love playing football now for this, this guy. And at the same time, the Serie A is improving too, right? It's been a down number of years for the Serie A, but now it's the highest scoring league in Europe, I believe, out of the top leagues. So that's, that's evolved as well. For myself, Gianluigi Donnarumma was amazing. Uh, as a Chelsea fan, I'm not overly thrilled with his recent signing with PSG, but you know his game during the Euro this past month was remarkable. He made big stops along the way, including several crucial ones and penalties, and deservingly so, he took home player of the tournament. In sports, we often see the passing of a torch from one grade to another, where one great retires and another is on the rise. From one Gianluigi to the next, is it safe to say that Donnarumma is Italy's next Buffon? Has he earned that right to call it his net? He already has something that Buffon doesn't, and he's only 21. And that something is a European championship. Let me tell you, that's just not fair. It's not fair that you've had Gigi Buffon for how many years? And now you've got Donnarumma. You know, I'm an England fan, right? We've got Jordan Pickford. All right, he's okay. We had Joe Hart. You know, since David Seaman, who was really good, there's been this this swath of, of very average goalkeepers. And you guys are going to have like 40 years of two goalkeepers, basically, who are incredible. Yeah, Donnarumma absolutely has taken the, the, the torch from Buffon. Like you said, he's 21, 22 years of age, and he's got a European championship. Um, he's just a dominant goalkeeper. In that shootout, he's six foot five. He's massive. He's smart. He's aggressive. He got the, the player of the tournament. 
I, I think, uh, you know, what is Milan's last is PSG's game for sure. And you know, like you said, you're a Chelsea fan. I, I, I get it. It seems that PSG always signs big name players and then they, they still lose. So I wouldn't worry about it too much. But uh, <laughs> Donnarumma will sure look really good, I think, in that goal. There have been many amazing moments at this year's Euros. My favorite has to be when the football community came together. We know what happened uh, with uh, Christian Eriksen and Denmark's opener. And, you know, it doesn't matter if you're Polish, if you're Italian, if you're German, um, English, Swedish, whatever. You never want to see a player go down like that. And, you know, just seeing like when the players, you know, build that shield around Eriksen, that was just remarkable for the privacy. Uh, And then what really touched my heart was when Denmark captain went to comfort Eriksen's wife, who saw everything happen right in front of her eyes, just seeing that was amazing. And correct me if I'm wrong, but I think, I don't know if it was from the group stage or if it was from the knockout stages moving forward, every team presented a jersey to Denmark prior to kickoff. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, I mean, I still remember that so vividly. It really shook me for a few days, that whole incident. Um, but I think you're right. It really showed us what the football world can do when put in the right light. You know, football as the biggest sport in the world is hammered by the media across the globe for numerous reasons and rightly so, you know, be it, you know, gamesmanship on the field, be it, you know, violence off the field, be it racism, fair enough, but there's also a wonderful part of the game and we saw the game come together and unite behind Denmark and Christian Eriksen and those, those images of, of Shia, the captain, you know, embracing Eriksen's wife, um, my God, I mean, some of the defining moments images of this tournament in fact it might be that the image of the players circling Ericsson mm-hmm. in that to, to preserve his dignity when they thought he could be dead he could be dying mm-hmm. and he did that to preserve a man's dignity that to me will always be the defining image of this tournament it started off so horribly for everyone but certainly Gavin's seen the tournament but yeah I think you're right I think that was a wonderful example of, of how sport can come together and look after its own right and what has been uh, your favorite, your most memorable moment from the past month of great football we all got to see? Yeah, favorite moment? Boy, you know what? I There's mean, a lot. it's probably centered around England. <laughs> Semi funny. You know, you know what it was? No, what it was. You know what? Okay, I'm torn here between the Germany game and the Denmark game. Beating Germany, the big rivals, was really special. But at the same time, I understand Germany isn't the Germany of old, but still, that was a big moment. But I think. Beating Denmark and getting to a final for the first time in my in my life. I'm 47 years old, right? I've been tortured by this bloody team my entire life, you know, and these big moments when you think they can do well and, and they, they crumble. So to see them actually persevere and play a good Denmark team and really control that game. I haven't been that nervous watching a football game for a long time. Even though they were in control for most of the match, it was narrow enough that I was like, they're going to blow it, it's England. So when they got over that final hurdle and blew that whistle, this massive sense of relief, like, oh, thank Christ, we, we, we found a way, we managed to do it. So uh, that's probably my favorite moment. That reminds me a lot about a team that plays hockey in Toronto, definitely. You know what, there's so many comparisons on there. <laughs> it was a pleasure talking about Euro 2020 with you, James. Thanks so much for coming on, and let's talk again soon. Absolutely, anytime, Matthew, enjoyed that, thanks. As Euro 2020 has officially come to a close and we await the start of qualifiers for Qatar 2022 and wait for Euro 2024 in Germany, let's take a flashback to some of the things we'll most remember from this magical tournament. When the outbreak of COVID-19 hit, the entire world was forced to shut down, closing and suspending everything we adored most, including Euro 2020. 
But even though we had to wait an entire year for this tournament to happen, it was well worth the wait. Both Italy and England were hit hard by the vicious disease, making this final even more meaningful to both nations. England fans, keep your heads up. This young team will be back, making the semis of the 2018 World Cup and now the Euro final is something to be proud of. Italy fans, on the other hand, it came to Rome. What a 180 turn by the Azzurri, from failing to qualify for the World Cup to winning European glory. This team is back on the map and has eyes on their next prize with coach Roberto Mancini. This tournament saw the ball in the back of the net 142 times, 34 times more than we saw in 2016. 11 of those 142 happened to be own goals, a number that is more than the previous 16 tournaments have had combined. Cristiano Ronaldo, on the other hand, he scored all five of his goals in the group stage, and that's all he needed to take home top score of Euro 2020. Fans were gifted with some incredible strikes. We saw the longest goal ever recorded in European Championship history at almost 50 yards when Patrick Schick scored versus Scotland. And speaking of fans being gifted, June 28th, 2021 will be remembered for many years to come. We were treated with not one, but two high-scoring, entertaining matches. First with Spain and Croatia's eight-goal thriller, followed by Switzerland shocking the world champions France by advancing on penalties after an entertaining 120 minutes where we saw six goals. Raise your hand if you had all the teams from the group of death not making it past the round of 16. Be honest. Euro 2020 will be unlike any other. With 11 host countries, it's unlikely that we will ever see this happen again. But as the famous saying goes, all good things must come to an end. And as we say our farewells to Euro 2020, we shift our focus to the qualifiers that are set to resume in September for Qatar 2022. Congratulations to Italy on winning Euro 2020. And with that being said, season one has come to an end. Doing this show has been something I've had on my mind for quite some time. And even though this first season was far shorter than usual, it's been a blast. A big shout out to all the guests coming on, helping me kickstart my show, Christian Jack, Leo Barb, James Sharman, thank you. I'm happy to announce season two will be premiering this upcoming fall 2021 for my first full season, where we'll see more than four episodes. Be sure to follow the show and myself on social media to stay tuned on an exact date. From the bottom of my heart, thank you. Thank you to everyone who tuned in to listen and watch, even if it was for just a few seconds. It means the world. Until we see you again, take care, everybody.